why I'm very passionate about Māori health is not actually about Māori. It's about vulnerability. And while not all Māori are vulnerable and not all vulnerable people are Māori, the overlap is enormous. So where we see that overlap between vulnerable and Māori, we can use Māori health to tell us how well our health system is performing. They're the canaries in the coal mine of a failing health system. And so all of us as healthcare clinicians should care about what's happening with Māori health because that's what's happening at the bottom. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. So welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome, Carlton. We've got Carlton Irving, who is a critical care paramedic who's worked in search and rescue. He's also an advisor on a bazillion different boards in paramedicine and health. He's a father to six children. He's also a fourth year medical student, and he is from the East Cape, and his iwi is Te Whakatoa here. Kia ora. Welcome. Thank you. You've many hats. You've done a lot of different things, but tell me about your journey to how you got here, basically. To medicine, specifically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just in health, what you've achieved, where you want to go with it. Sure. So I got into paramedicine by accident, along like 20, coming up 20, 20 years ago. So I was a musician and we were touring at the time and the guitarist <laughs> in the band that I was playing in broke his leg. And we had to go for a ride in an ambulance because it was quite a bad sort of breaking the fracturing his acetabulum but I went for a ride in the ambulance and got chatting to the crew that came to pick him up and it just got me thinking oh this looks like a job I could do and anyway I looked into it and they were advertising and I applied and yeah not long after that I was getting trained and into becoming a paramedic and I started at the very bottom oh, the first aid job, right? yeah started off at the bottom and then just thought oh what's the pinnacle in this job and I thought it was working in the rescue helicopters and then I did that for a number of years but yeah I got quite sick and while I was going through this phase of being really unwell I looked at the whole like I wouldn't say an existential crisis but it was quite bleak at the time and I thought well look if I get through this what's on my bucket list what haven't I done that I always wanted to do it. Like I'd always wanted to be a doctor when I was younger, but then high school came around and I was more interested in sort of sport girls and eating my lunch than doing <laughs> any schoolwork. Going into medical school after high school probably wouldn't have been the step for me. I'd spent so many years working in paramedicine and in the time I was in paramedicine, I did a lot of work outside of the day-to-day of working in the rescue helicopter around initiatives to improve Māori and health for vulnerable people. I'd go into meetings in certain places and I get asked, well, who's the doctor involved in this project? And I'd say, well, there isn't one. This is just something I'm trying to do. And they're like, so you're here to talk to us about childhood vaccinations and you're a rescue helicopter paramedic. And I could just see that there was this instant disconnect. And so. So I'm imagining that the people that you're talking to, were they doctors as well? 
Some of them were, yeah, to be fair, some were, and some were just people within the old DHB structure and they were just sitting there. I could see that they just didn't understand how someone who they just obviously think is G.I. Joe cared about things like getting people stopping smoking, not realizing that when people don't do these things that are obviously preventable by the time we get to them in the ambulance and whatever iteration we arrive in. It's often too late to make the change that could have stopped oh, totally. them ever meeting us. I ended up getting some friends who were doctors to come into some of these meetings so we could get these projects going, which was really rewarding. In a different way from saving a life, getting a public health project over the line is incredibly rewarding, but it's not instant gratification. It just made me realize rather than getting my friends to come along and pretend to be involved who are doctors in these projects so we could get them to happen, I might as well just go and become a doctor and do it myself. I think it's crazy that you felt like you had to do medicine to be taken seriously almost. Within medicine, I think there's almost like an arrogance within doctors that like, we are right, obviously working in the front lines, essentially. You have mm. a different perspective that's as equally as valid, if not more. And it's great that you're doing medicine, but I, I feel like we should be able to take your work seriously without having an MPCHB. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to be part of the system that just accepts <laughs> that's how it is. But there are some uncomfortable truths in life. And I think in this generation, we're still progressing. What I've come to realize in the short time that I've been in health is you can't change a system unless you're in it. It's very difficult. I heard this wonderful adage last night at a hui I was at that our system does need to change. And the thing that would change, it is not necessarily system redesign. It's not necessarily how you organize things. It's positive disruptors. It's people that are willing to get in there and actually call out what we need to change. Because if we're all just sitting around going, yeah, yeah, this is great. Let's rename it this and rename it that and set this up and that up. And you don't have the people in there that are going to actually push it into the direction it needs to move. It's all for nothing. It was a really inspiring talk that I heard from Professor Crampton, Peter Crampton, who I just have all the time in the world for. Here's some brilliant insights. So I asked him if he thought the current restructure would end in things getting better. And uh, yeah, that te was a, order restructuring. Yeah, te yeah. order and te order and the kind of restructure. And he said, yes, but it comes down to positive disruptors. Those are the things that will take us where we need to go. Maybe that's how we break the revolving door. Yeah, maybe. You are one of the advisors for te order. Could you tell me more about that role? Yeah, sure. I'm working with the National Ambulance Sector Organization and the Aeromedical Commissioning Program and looking at how we can create systems that actually achieve equity and building a system that looks to achieve that. Our ambulance and aeromedical system has popped up from local communities fundraising and just putting a helicopter or an ambulance station or whatever, and then that's giving them the service in their community that they could fundraise for, which is brilliant. And I think that's wonderful. But if you actually think about that at a system level, if we think about like Julian Tudor Hart, 1971, Welsh GP, talked about the inverse care law, that the people who are most deserving of healthcare or in most need get the least, and those who have the least need get the most healthcare. Who's going to get a great service? The people that can afford it. Who's going to miss out? Those that can't fundraise to buy a helicopter or an ambulance. This is not casting stones. This is just an observation that we're still perpetuating that in 2022, 51 years after it was raised, that this is a problem that should set alarm bells off. Just because you live in a town that's got a hospital doesn't necessarily mean it has the facilities that can offer major trauma surgery or cardiac intervention. 
Yeah. And some of them are so far away that by the time you send a helicopter to that place to go retrieve them and bring them back to those hospitals, it's probably a couple of hours after they've had a heart attack or a stroke or something from calling an ambulance to the nearest hospital and then being diagnosed by the time you make a referral. The transit time is so long that by the time they'd get to the tertiary or higher level hospital, they'd probably breach the threshold for when we were allowed to actually do those procedures. And I think yeah. that probably leads to a lot of differences in health outcomes as well for rural populations. Absolutely. The ambulance service we have, and while it has been based on this fundraising model I was talking about, it's done an incredible job. What other great things that paramedics do that the general public don't know about? Gosh, probably loads of things. We've had stroke clot retrieval for a number of years with diagnosis in the field and immediate taken to clot retrieval centers. We've had spinal pathway policies, burns policies. There are a myriad of things. I think paramedicine's a funny workforce because they have a really broad skill set. They're highly trained, highly motivated people who work autonomously that no one thinks about until you need us. There's a lot of places that you could utilize paramedics to help plug the gaps. We have desperate shortages of primary care. And we're looking at throwing a whole lot of money at nurse practitioners, which is wonderful, in order to train up this autonomous workforce to come in and help plug these gaps. Where paramedics are literally sitting under everyone's nose doing that every day, all day, have been for the last however long. And, and not being paid very much for it either. I probably shouldn't <laughs> get into that argument. It's a really strange thing that no one thinks about paramedicine. Until you're upside down in a car in a ditch or you're having a heart attack or a stroke or you need us and you interact with us, people go, oh, wow, you guys can do so many things. Overseas paramedics have been pulled in to fill lots of gaps for many years in the UK and Australia is moving that direction. We're very slow to pick it up in New Zealand and yet New Zealand has probably one of the highest trained, if not the highest trained paramedic workforce at the critical care paramedic, extended care paramedic area. Most of those clinicians would have a minimum of probably six or seven years full-time experience and at least probably a post-grad diploma behind them. They're very experienced people that we could easily utilize in other places. Yeah, because I feel like especially in primary care, we're so fractured. There's very inefficient communication between primary care and hospital care. We get these patients who just get lost in between. And when the trend of general practice is changing from people having like their one GP that's known them since they were born and they're their GP for life to seeing different GPs every time you go to the clinic. In Carpety Coast for... Gosh, many years we've had paramedics delivering primary care through the oh, urgent care and then the extended care paramedic, because there's a primary care shortage there, Wellington Free have stepped in well over a decade. They've been doing primary care out there and had no issues. It's had a, been an incredibly successful run that they've had. It's just been very slow to be taken up in other places. Why do you think it's not happened as much elsewhere in New Zealand? I think there's a number of issues. There's funding through ACC, not being able to be treatment providers. That's something that's being looked at at the moment. I think it's a lot of unfamiliarity within general practice or primary care around what paramedics can do. Because we are this mysterious group of people that swan around in ambulances <laughs> and helicopters that just show up and do stuff. And everyone's like, hey, what have you got in your MacGyver bag there that you could use for this? Oh, in my experience, most of my training has been in hospitals and emergency departments. And I'm like, oh, wow, these guys do everything. It's really great. Like I've been impressed with so much stuff. I mean, impressed sounds like my opinion is worth 
<laughs> like validating someone. But I see, like I've seen, um, you know, drownings and stuff and the helicopter paramedics come along and they're in there with like their CPR machines and they're like in their wetsuits and then you guys have like your like jumpsuits and I'm like, wow, these are like the coolest guys around. I don't know that we're the coolest, <laughs> coolest people around, but I think it's a job that I've loved for a long time. And I just think it'll come a time when it's recognized a bit more broadly in the healthcare system. And hopefully we see that bring about some change and more integration. More of us not being so worried about staying in our lane and worried about how do we work together as a team to get better outcomes for patients. If you could change the system in an instant, Mm -hmm. how would you change it so that paramedics could be more integrated into primary care? So in the rural area, I think rather than having an ambulance station and a local GP clinic or something, put them in the same place. The ambulance call volumes aren't really high. The primary healthcare need is extremely high. Why can't you have them in there vaccinating, helping assess, treat, triage patients? create more opportunities for things like after-hours care in rural communities, which is so devoid at the moment. It's kind of a no-brainer. I don't know why we're not doing it. So do you mean having paramedics sitting in like urgent care, seeing patients while they're not out rescuing patients? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that if you made rural healthcare hubs where you had that type of service along with your nurses, doctors, everyone else that needs to be part of that rural healthcare community, yeah, it would make a lot of sense to work as a rural team rather than have one bit here and one bit there and one bit over there. Bring them together. It almost feels like heresy to say this, but if you look at some of the rural models that they use in Australia, they're very clever in that way that they integrate those services to get better outcomes for those rural communities. We talk about rural populations, so like people who live two hours drive from like the nearest doctor. What do you think about like paramedics getting involved in delivering the primary care to the people who live so far away and geographically it's, it's so difficult to access? It's already happening. That's what yeah. so it's already happening. Yeah, we've been, involved in, prim- we've been ha- involved in primary care. I think I'd make the key point that the calls that Ambulance has been dealing with for a number of years have been increasingly more and more primary care focused because people just can't access their GP. They, can't, they don't want to go to the emergency department. They run out of options. They ring us. That's probably why primary care has become more and more a part of what we're interested in and what we're involved in. And coming back to you, why is a guy who jumps in a helicopter is coming to talk about child vaccination <laughs> strategies? is because we see these things every day, all day, because we are the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, pun intended. Like the healthcare system doesn't do the job. Who does everyone think goes to these people? Because they will access the healthcare system where they can. Everyone goes, oh, they show up at the ED. Well, no, they don't all show up at the ED. A number of them call the ambulance because they've got barriers to even getting to ED. Like if you're a sick mum at home with a solo mum with three kids, it's two in the morning, you're in a terrible way organizing someone to take care of your kids. You need someone to come and look at you, make sure whatever you've got is not life-threatening and come up with a solution to manage your health. That, of course, is going to be us because there's no other option. But I guess my only reservation around any of these things is we have to be careful not to silo. It's really great to bring paramedics and do these types of things, but it's more important that they're doing it as part of a wider health network, not that they're taking on just this chunk of healthcare and it's not directly connected to everything else. Like a paramedic that's doing that job, but they are like a part of a primary healthcare network. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I'd love to see. I get these kids who, there's like several kids in the family who need to be vaccinated, but they 
don't want to go to the GP because they don't want to sit in a waiting room full of people coughing in case they catch COVID. And one thing could be, like I say, paramedics delivering vaccines. Mm. If there was funding that was allocated for, you know, elective procedures, you might call them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. During the pandemic, I got a bunch of paramedics to volunteer. We went and did mud eye based vaccination clinics drive through so we could get like the elderly and the infirm and stuff to just drive through, get their flu vaccine or whatever they needed without risking getting sick. Yeah, absolutely. Va- paramedics can be vaccinators. We're allowed to be vaccinators under that. But yeah, it's, just, it's something that we thought we needed to do to keep our community on the East Coast, as you say, two hours or something from hospital. We wanted to show that we want to be part of solutions for the future. So a bunch of us went and did that. Amazing. So much good work can come out of paramedicine and prevention as well, right? Yeah. And I say that yeah. as I'm leaving paramedicine, but yes, it's a good, <laughs> I just, yeah. It's a great career and it's a great workforce. Oh, I mean, you've served many years, so I think you're allowed to change direction a little bit. Other questions I want to ask you about is like your work in Kaupapa Māori in both paramedicine and medical school. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So where would you like to start with that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wherever you'd like to start. (laughs) Oh, it's a big topic, I'm sure. I'm sure you would. It is. Very um, long, very hard in both places, many places. <laughs> so when I joined the ambulance service, I wouldn't say I was entirely devoid of things Māori, but it pretty much was. And so I felt really uncomfortable and confronted being a Māori in an organisation that just, there was just nothing for Māori and nothing that reflected us. And yet we see Māori patients all the time. So I thought, what can I do about this? Anyway, I got transferred to South Auckland after about a year in the service. And working in South Auckland, I, was, I worked in Māngere, Manakaura and Otahu. Very multicultural kind of community. And when I went to Māngere particularly and around there, I'd say probably at least oh, one out of three, maybe one out of two patients wasn't English first language and the majority of them were Samoan speaking. So I thought in order to get better at what I'm doing, I should go and learn to speak a bit of Samoan. So I learned a bit of Samoan. And as I learned a bit of Samoan, I learned more about the Samoan culture and how to interact with Samoan families. And it just dawned on me, hey, I'm learning about how to interact better with Samoan that I was visiting. And it just changed the whole dynamic when you could go in, you could speak a bit of Samoan and you understood a little bit about why they did things. And the whole patient interaction became so much easier, so much smoother. It was much, it was more natural and it was a lot better outcomes for both of us that I could understand what they needed and how to help them. And they got what they wanted. And it made me have this light bulb moment that this is what it must be like for Māori when we get people who don't know anything about our culture interacting with us. And so I thought, right, I'm going to change this. And I went and shook the cage in every direction that I could within the organisation. <laughs> probably burnt a few bridges, to be fair. but It probably weren't be... very good bridges. Oh, it probably weren't very good bridges. <laughs> Peter Crampton's now given me a word for it. You need to be a positive disruptor. So I thought, I'm going to get in and try and disrupt this as much as I can. I said, we need to set this up. We need to do this, da 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 and, the Uber um, of Kopapa Māori. Well, I would say the Uber. But <laughs> <laughs> if this is as simple as it really was, it was to change the way that interacting with Samoan families was for me. I could do this for other people to try and interact with Māori families. And so I set up a Māori advisory group within St. John when I was working for them and got others to help me develop like cultural safety training for the ambulance service. And we rolled it out. We trained people in basic Tadeo. Basic tikanga Māori, these are the things that will increase their engagement with you and not cause unintentional offence. And it wasn't until we started doing that good and bad things came out 
when you introduce change is where you start to see the extreme ends of the people that were just waiting for you to go in and try and drive these changes and the people that so fiercely resist them. When you start talking about things like equity and creating opportunities to bring more Māori or more women or whatever into a place that displaces them, they start throwing around words reverse racism. You know, even just that term, reverse racism, you think, what mentality comes up with a statement like that? You're either racist or you aren't. It's not a spectrum, like it's a very clear thing. Is what I'm doing bigoted, yes or no? And if it is, then just call it what it is. But I was really shocked and troubled that when we got people going out teaching these courses, they were facing like really big backlash from people who were like, oh, I don't need to have this rammed down my throat. I'm not being a part of this on one side of the spectrum. The other side, people that were just so excited about it. I think in a number of ways that when people out themselves, that's the heart that they carry, that they're just very anti-engaging with anything in that space. Do you need to put them on a course of correction or let them go because they probably don't belong in health? If you can't learn that people need different things, different people need different ways of being treated in order to feel respected, then healthcare probably isn't for you. (laughs) (laughs) And you can quote me on that. I stand by that. I don't know everything. I don't know about dealing with Samoan patients. I learned something that changed the game. And there's probably lots more I can learn. And I think that it's really good we've moved from this theory of cultural competence to cultural safety because you can't be competent like i could go and learn to speak a bit of samoan that doesn't make me competent in all things samoan it probably makes me a bit safer and i think that's important is understanding that there is no way to be competent in every aspect of other people's culture but there's a way that you can be safe and treat them with respect and dignity and that was where i suppose this journey for me started If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. During the pandemic, I worked with a private ambulance service, actually, ProMed, and we worked on doing things like vaccination drives and looking at how we can address inequities for Māori communities. So knowing that people couldn't get face-to-face GP consultations during the pandemic for a number of reasons, I knew that that would cause a big issue for places like Northland and the East Coast where I come from because especially for our older people, kanohi ki kanohi, like face-to-face is a really important way of connecting with people and mm. telehealth and stuff like that in places with patchy mobile connection. Lance O'Sullivan and I got together and we had this brainwave of setting up a mobile clinic in Northland and a mobile clinic in the East Coast. Our initial iteration was using like, we're going to use containers, but then we realized that we needed to be more mobile. So we used camp events and we did COVID testing, we did vaccinations and we provided face-to-face consults for people that needed it, that needed access to a GP. We did it as drive-through as we could to sort of demonstrate that you can do mobile health. We just wanted to prove that this is a model that could be done could and, you, and you could use paramedics in that space and it did and it was really cool so we got to do that while we were running these mobile clinics pop-up COVID vaccination and testing centers and things there was a cardiac arrest at one of the mud eye in the area I come from and we realized that there weren't AEDs on the mud eye there and that people didn't have CPR training and we're like okay in life sometimes when you kick rocks lots of stuff comes scuttling out and you can decide to ignore it or you go all in and try and fix it. And You're a fixer, aren't you? <laughs> I am a terrible fixer. 
<laughs> to, to my detriment. Anyway, we found that this was a problem. So what we did was we got a hold of Sipuni Kokiri and we're like, okay, hey, look, there's no DFibs on these mud eyes. There's no no CPR training. We'll organize people to go do free CPR training if you'll stump up and provide the AEDs. And they did. So we went and we set up and provided free CPR training to the mud eye around the district and put 10, no, 12, correction, 12 AEDs into rural mud eyes around the East Coast to make sure that no one else in Spano would have to deal with that again. It's fun when you get those opportunities. You see a problem, you bolt a solution together and you can just roll it out. Yeah, it was cool. That's it, right? Early CPR, early defibrillator. Like that's all the principles of good pre-hospital care. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so on the back of this, I got really angry about a number of things because of the stuff we were seeing that was coming through the clinic. And I sent a pretty heated <laughs> message to, to Pini Hinade. And said, look, man, this is going on. I want to have a chat with you about this. And we had a really good chat, but it was pretty direct, raising a lot of issues that were being faced. And What um, were you saying? Oh, family that were living in tent, like people struggling to get food, like really just stuff that shouldn't be happening in, in a country that has a welfare state. Like why have we got such high levels of homelessness amongst Māori? Why are we struggling to get people into houses? It's all good having vaccination programs, but if kids are living in tents, then that's not going to stop them getting sick, is it? No. You know, I think in New Zealand, we have a really low occupancy rate, you might say. All these like empty houses with nobody living in them and all these people who don't have houses. What's that about? I'll make this point. When we talk about Māori health, and I think you wanted to talk about this, and it's probably a good segue into it. What I'd say about Māori health and why I'm really like very passionate about Māori health is not actually about Māori. It's about vulnerability. If you look at the things that make Māori health bad they're the social determinants of health and while not all maori are vulnerable and not all vulnerable people are maori the overlap is enormous and so it's really difficult to stratify all these different vulnerable groups in our society and metrics and go well this is what health looks like for i don't know somali refugees in south auckland what we can do is we can say what's happening for Māori health in that area because a lot of the things that alienate and drive poor health outcomes for Māori are shared across different groups. And we know that physical health and social determinants of health have a bigger impact on health outcomes than access or services. So where we see that overlap between vulnerable and Māori, we can use Māori health to tell us how well our health system is performing. They're the canaries in the coal mine of a failing health system. And so all of us as healthcare clinicians should care about what's happening with Māori health because that's what's happening at the bottom. And if you lift Māori, you're lifting everyone that's sitting in that vulnerable group. I am Māori. I fuck up up to the East Coast. But my heart and desire towards Māori health isn't about Māori. It's about lifting the bottom. And I think that more of us could get on that walker. 100%. Interventions that will help Māori and help reduce inequities. That helps everybody. Oh, Absolutely. But what does that mean? When you lift Māori, how does that help everybody else? Because it sounds like a great soundbite. The things that are holding Māori down aren't just holding Māori down. They're dragging everybody else with them. So if we see that trend rising, we're doing the right thing. But I'm going to make a point that the inverse is not true, that some interventions that help everyone do not help Māori as much. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. Like That is a very good point. Oh, we'll do this strategy and it'll fix things. Yeah, okay, it lifts the top 10% another two. But everyone else is still having a rubbish hit. It's not a good outcome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, I think it's really great that we have free GP visits for like under 14s. That's great. But like you say, the families where they could probably have afforded to take their kids to the GP anyway, 
Mm. They're probably the ones that like benefit like the most. And the families who who couldn't really afford to take their kids to the GP probably still can't afford to take their kids to the GP because time, petrol, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Free GP visits are a wonderful thing. Don't get me wrong. But that's on the proviso that people who are extremely time poor can actually get their kids to the GP. Exactly. Or who don't have transport to get there. Or in some rural areas, don't have a GP. If you're looking for the solutions, if you're looking for how do we fix Māori health, in a sentence, hire more Māori into health. Because if you look at all the things that drive poor health outcomes, their income, their education, their housing, get people into good jobs and specifically target Māori, Pacifica, other vulnerable communities and get them into health careers and get rid of barriers like having to go and spend an exorbitant amount of money going to learn how to do these health careers. We desperately need nurses, doctors and paramedics and other healthcare professions. Rather than just continuously throwing money into the endless cycle that we have at the moment, invest it into training these people into health careers. You'd get such a better return for money giving them a career education and the ability to move their families out of poverty. That is the very clear solution to the problem. I almost despair that no one's doing it. The cost of living is high. Exactly. And like to be able to afford to go to university, like that's crazy. I couldn't have done it without my parents' support. That's just a fact. Yep. I vocationally trained into paramedicine. If that wasn't an avenue in, I would never have done it. I couldn't afford it to. I came back to medicine at this stage in my life not because I can afford to, because, you know, it's <laughs> <laughs> still expensive. <laughs> I don't know how you do this and have six children. I don't know how I'm doing this with no children. You have to work a lot. That's the brutal reality of doing medicine at this age and stage in my life is I have to work. I don't have any option but to work. It is what it is. I can't get away from that. And medical school's not set up in New Zealand for people who are parents. It's not. They want you to do this shift and that shift and go in on the weekend and be there until this time at night. And you're like, okay, that's cool. I'm having to already work a job to afford to be here in the first place because there's no way my family could survive on the student. If I was eligible for the student allowance, I should point out because <laughs> I'm too old. But if I was eligible for it, there's no way my family could afford to survive on it. And you have to beg, borrow and steal as much help as you can to get through. We don't train enough doctors to fill the holes we have. We don't. We train, what, I think 40%, 50% of the total requirement in New Zealand. That's crazy. We were totally reliant on importing foreign doctors into New Zealand. And I don't have any problems with that. That's not, a, that's not a loaded statement. But it begs the question, if we're willing to invest all this money in, to bring people into New Zealand to get them on to do jobs, why couldn't we invest that money into creating a local sustainable workforce, specifically one that represents the community that it serves? Because as much as it's really awesome to bring in foreign expertise and they offer an immense value to our healthcare system, we're never going to get to having a healthcare workforce represent the community that serves with that attitude and that approach. It's the same with our nurses. There's this huge drive on at the moment to bring more internationals in. That's all cool. But how is that going to get us to having one in five people being Māori in our health workforce? If you made that workforce pipeline within these communities who are vulnerable, and if you're doing it in a way that doesn't mean financial ruin for them, that would be lovely too. <laughs> that would be nice. Wouldn't that would be it? nice. A little bit more money. You- yeah, having to wait until the, the sixth year to get a bit of money. Oh, it's torture. It is. Like I say, I'm still childless and I was still... <laughs> just made it through and was like had an okay life but i just don't know how are you doing it with six children <laughs> I think, yeah no like, i get asked it all the time like how do you like financial aside i'm like you know hey, well, do you like, sleep <laughs> yeah no not a lot 
you told me before about your grandfather who, you know, is not Māori, but he is so Māori that he's Māori. I fuck a papa from the high chief Mokomoko, who was executed by the Crown for murdering a priest a long time ago, and that was the start of the East Coast War. And my family was actually in the exiled from our tribe as a result of him being blamed for the war and the subsequent confiscation of all of our land. Anyway, my grandfather comes from a Scottish family and was born in Australia, but fell in love with a Māori woman and moved to the East Coast to be with her. And to be accepted into the family, he learned to speak Te Māori and joined the Māori church and became, I believe, the only non-Māori minister of the Dingatū church, which is a staunchly Māori, staunchly anti-Park, not anti-Park, I should say <laughs> It was anti-crown back in the day. And anyway, he was an entirely accepted member of my people of Ngātira, who are who staunch, the Tūturu Māori of the East Coast. And when he died, we had a tangi for him, like any other Māori that belonged to him. And so while he was born in Australia to a Scottish family, he died Māori. And I know that he's not the only person that's not born of our blood to be accepted into our culture, accepted into our hapu, accepted into our iwi, and to be honoured in that way. You know, he's the person that taught me to speak to our Māori. Our culture isn't just skin deep. There's more to it. It's about the wider. It's about the way of being. It's about the way of interacting with other people. And I learned that from him, and I, I still miss him dearly. It was really cool to grow up with this Pākehā that spoke beautiful Māori on the mud. I stood on the pie and preached in the Māori church. That was pretty profound, and I suppose that changed my way of thinking about my way of including others. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, he's a special man. Jim Watson was his name. Yeah, it's cool. Pretty well known in Fortiki, old Uncle Jim. (laughs) (laughs) Cultural safety is such an important thing. We're of the generation where we get a lot of it. I'm sure that these are even more now in medical school. Being a person of colour myself, it is so much easier to see things play out when you're like in, in those spaces. Like when I see my Asian patients, I'm always like, okay, got to advocate for them even more because I know it's all at a subconscious level, but I can just see how easily they're treated differently. For example, if they come in breathless because they've got a COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease exacerbation or something like that. And obviously they're breathless. They're so breathless that they can't speak. And sometimes the assumption is that they can't speak English, but they're not speaking oh. because they're so breathless. <laughs> it's it's like, so cringy. It's just so cringy. Or I've had elderly family members who are brought in and they're really sick, have lots of weight loss. And I talk to the family and it's like a the daughter that's brought them in or whatever hmm. and they're like oh it's been happening for a long time and you look up their notes and they've been seeing lots of different doctors and maybe the investigations haven't been ordered or haven't been done or whatever and yeah. we find out then and there that they've got cancer or some other condition or whatever and yeah. but the attitude towards these families is like oh why didn't you why didn't you bring them in earlier or why didn't you do this or why didn't you do that or some of these families yeah. have had doctors or clinicians who haven't had the time to sit down with them talk about what's going on or actually do the investigations to take these things seriously. And then basically these patients present on death's doorstep and it's not the family's fault. I do know, yeah, yeah. I Absolutely, that resonates with me. I'd say this, as a Māori, I find it really confronting sometimes. I'll give you an example. Like One of my classmates is from Auckland, grown up in Auckland, her family's been there, and her family are of Chinese descent. They've been here for some time. We had a lecturer come in and talk, and it was like, oh, so where are you from? She was like, Auckland. No, 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 but where are you from? 
And I was like, oh, classic. I was like, she just said she's from Auckland. I, I had this moment of, what is he asking? And then, oh, where are your parents from? Auckland. No, but <laughs> originally, and she's like, well, my ancestors come from China. Oh, so you're Chinese. I was sitting there, I was like, bro, you're a Parker. Like, where are you from? My ancestors <laughs> came here on the Auckland. It just felt really unwelcoming. And maybe it's just me as a Māori that saw it in that light. But I was like, are you okay? And she's like, man, people do that all the time. She talked about what it's like being Asian in New Zealand and people expect you to speak Chinese. There's that undercurrent of these things that unless you're exposed to them, you don't understand how prevalent it is. It's an interesting sort of segue we've taken, but we have to think about addressing bias broadly within the healthcare system. And there's no panacea for that one other than maybe be a bit culturally safe and try not to be a dick. Like it's not hard. Yeah, try not to be a dick. That's probably a, a good one. <laughs> we look at the medical workforce, and I think something like 4% of doctors are Māori, yeah. and something like 15% of the population are Māori. And we're talking about now. trying to. 17, Over 17, okay. yeah, yeah. We're cruising towards 20. We can get. Oh, you got your six children. I know, so yeah. You're, you're doing I'm the doing my part. Yeah, I'm doing the mate. <laughs> It's tough. And so we're trying to increase the amount of Māori doctors and nurses and all that to try and meet that. And by doing that alone, that's going to take years and years and years and years to try and reach parity. And we talked about the whole, instead of making more Māori doctors, why don't we make more doctors Māori? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's... Yes. I love that you've grabbed that phrase off me. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So since I've come into med school, I think I've told you, I like, I kick the rock and then things scuttle out and I'm just sucker for punishment. So I'm like, let's get in there. Since we've got into med school, we've set up a space within the Otago University campus here in Dunedin, specifically for Māori students, because we didn't have one. So there's a, we've created a whānau room. So there's a place that Māori can go and be with other Māori to make it more comfortable. I could see that people were struggling with pronouncing Māori words regularly. And I thought, okay, cool. And I was talking to my friend, Nick, and we were walking out of a lecture, going across to the Hunter Centre, we're standing at the lights, and him, we were talking about this. And he's like, man, we have to help. We speak to our Māori, what can we do to help? And I was like, why don't we set up today our lessons and just teach students and teach staff how to speak to our Māori? And we were setting up this thing at the TDB Hospital. We get Māori kids to come along to us and teach some medical students how to speak Māori. And we set up a class thinking we'd get 30 people. And we had 170-something students that were like, yeah, we want to come wow. and learn Māori. And we were like, oh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> we did a couple of sessions teaching basic, really basic pronunciation and really basic, like, kiwahan stuff in Māori. And people just loved it. And we are like, we should make this a kaupapa. I'm going to go see the dean. This is on the back of, in the time I've been here, we had the mirror on society thing and various other issues around racism raised in our sphere and Māori students getting bullied because other students were like, oh, you took my place, I got 96. You didn't earn it, blah, blah, blah. You didn't earn it, I got You got the easy and... road. Oh, that is the one, eh? You got the easy road. I'm like, man, would you like a <laughs> lifetime of institutional racism against you in this country or... To complain about the fact you have to get into medicine postgrad. Take your pick, man. Do you want to get followed around <laughs> by the security and farmers for the rest of your life? <laughs> or anyway, I digress. We were sitting there and we thought, we'd set this up. And I went and saw the dean and was like, hey, man, we want to set this up. We need rooms. We need some resources. Would you like to fund it? And our, our old dean, Rathan, was just straight up. He was like, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to be a part of it. How can I support it? And I was like, hey, he's like, I can't pay for tutors. And I was like, look, it's a cope up a Māori thing. How about you fund Kai? And he was like, done. And so one thing you know at university students, if there's a free feed, 
they're showing up. We talked about that dermatology interest group thing. And every time it was mealtime, I always showed up late. I was at the very end and I was like, oh, yes, I forget how much like medical students eat. They're so hungry. There's no food left for me at the end. <laughs> <laughs> but we put on a kite and we set up this co of Māori thing and we thought, just see how it goes. We had to shut off registrations at 80 because we're like, we can teach four groups of 20 meaningfully and probably no more. We ended up running it in the first semester and then the second semester again. And we did the same again this year. Same thing. We've just had this really great co-pupper that's just locked in. And what we did is we've run different levels and been training other students as they come through to take over and teach the courses. So as I leave the evening at the end of this year and when Nick leaves at the end of next year, the students that have been coming along can take it over and continue on with that cope up of teaching students and staff how to speak te reo Māori. And the cool thing about learning te reo Māori, big plug here, is that it's a great way to understand the Māori culture. And I think the thing with a lot of the tenets of the Māori culture aren't necessarily Māori specific. It's just that we give names to them. tanga, like having meaningful relationships with people. That's not an essentially Māori way of doing things. It's just the way that we should do things. We shouldn't have fake relationships with people. We should genuinely care about each other. It's not hard. Take an interest. Just don't be a dick. Just don't be a dick. And lots of other stuff like that, that you say what you mean and mean what you say. It's just, life's easier that way. And so we've taken people on this journey. It's been really beautiful. And we set up another another sort of cope up around cultural safety called Unity, where we get specialists to come in, surgery medic experts to come in it's a four-week thing where we get Asian health, Pacifica health, Rainbow health, Māori health experts to come in and speak to the student body so they can learn a bit about what it means to interact with people from different communities in a way that's meaningful. And that's really important that we learn these things. And so we've done that at the same time. We've helped look at how we can weave te reo through the, me and a bunch of other students, how we can weave te reo Māori through the curriculum introduce more of it and it's been really cool and wherever there's been opportunities or any placements or things that we've done we've been quiet a bunch of other Māori students try to find ways to weasel more more cope of Māori things in while we were in Tiamato I connected with the Māori health guys there and took the students got an opportunity to come to the marae come to the Māori health providers come to a few hui and get a bit of a sense of what the Māori world's and connecting the local people there with those resources. So if any other students want to go and do that moving forward, they can. So they get that experience. And when you demystify our world, the Māori world and interacting with Māori patients, it gets more natural and easier. And I see it with the students that we've been taking on this journey. They're not shy to go and to have a go at saying things into our Māori to Māori patients. They're like a It's really cool when you see like the odd kuya and stuff in the hospital and one of the Pākehā kids talking to them and they're like, Hey, look at this Pākehā medical student that's talking to you as an El Māori. And you're like, yeah, it's that awesome fire. And they're like, yeah, that's me. And it's just for the patient, for the student, and, and for me being a grumpy old Māori, it's just awesome. You're like, man, this is what the healthcare system could look like if we do it together. And it comes back to that whole point. We don't train enough Māori in our current system to make a big dent in, in the healthcare system and getting that diversity just yet. We might get there. So there's only so many Māori we can make doctors, but we can make a lot more doctors Māori. Not in their blood, but in the way they think and they act and they engage. And that could be a game changer for Māori health. One last question. Because I think we're we're a bit over our time, but one last question. Okay, so if you could have dinner with any person in the world and from any time point, past or present, who would you have dinner with? My grandfather. 
oh. without question in a heartbeat. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and te tiriti o Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Thank you.